Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. You may know that I've sought some feedback on the show and uh, there's still time to have your say if you'd like to. So just look out for the survey link in the show notes or drop me an email and I'll send a link to you instead. But one of the comments was to try and reduce the intro time and get straight into the heart of the matter. So here goes with this week's show, uh, looking at cash and institutional finance in property. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Let's start off this Series 3 proper by considering some of the more obvious ways of financing our property investments. However, with a bit of a twist, as it will perhaps be coming from a less conventional angle. Today we'll talk a little bit about cash and what I call institutional finance and how to apply it a little bit differently perhaps. In series one we covered financing your property investment in in a reasonable amount of detail. We revisited the topic again in series two with a two-part episode including a subject matter expert guest contribution from a highly respected finance broker Simon Allen where we explored the main characteristics and structure of some of the common methods of finance available from institutional lenders. The link to both of these episodes, uh, or all three of these episodes, are in the show notes, so you can revisit them there. Given that we've covered the topic a couple of times already, two questions probably come to mind then. Why bother doing a whole series on the subject? And what more is there to know? Well, dealing with the first question, the answer to that is simple. In this series, I plan to go deeper into the alternative and creative financing options and their practical application than I have done previously. I'll also um, have other subject matter guest experts or expert guests (laughs) on the show that are either specialist service providers that offer these alternatives or alternatively real property investors applying them in their own property businesses now. As for the second question, aside from what I just mentioned about some more um, new aspects of of finance and their practical application or practical usage, I would like to consider some more creative ways of applying financing than is perhaps commonly thought of. So let's start off today's discussion with cash then. Well, it's difficult to add too much more than I have covered uh, before without too much repetition, I suppose. At the simplest level, buying a property with cash means that we are using our own personal cash resources to acquire an investment property, probably from uh, savings or a windfall of some sort. Paying in cash offers two main benefits to us as investors, at least at face value, speed and reduced cost of acquisition. Speed is a true benefit, and whilst there are some other finance options around that can be completed quickly, cash is still king here, it's still considered to be king here. Even with other fast-to-arrange financing, such as auction or bridging finance, which we shall cover next time as I mentioned, cash buyers have less, less complexity and outside interference in their purchase, which has a distinct benefit to a vendor and to us too. 
So what else then is there to say about cash? Well, first of all, using cash allows us to position ourselves ahead of all other investors who are using some sort of financing, in the minds of an agent and a vendor at least. Here are some tips for you to consider when considering using cash, whether directly or indirectly. Quite often, to secure a great property opportunity, we'll be asked to provide proof of funds to the agent or vendor in order to verify our cash buyer status. This means having the funds readily available in a fast access bank account, including being able to share a copy of a recent bank statement to prove this. So the first step is to have the funds set aside and have the statement ready to be presented if requested. From a tactical point of view, we could consider attaching the proof of funds to any offer that we're making, if we feel it will elevate our standing and help to offset the discount we seek as a result. It, it could also be a little bit counterintuitive because <laughs> we might be disclosing how much cash we have got in the bank and that might give a different impression in the minds of the agent or vendor as well. So use that ta tactic wisely is what I would suggest. Next, we could consider using cash for the initial purchase in the interest of speed, but then backing into a finance facility such as a mortgage or bridging loan soon after completion. I personally use this tactic uh, to bag a good deal before the stamp duty rise at the end of March this year, and then you know sorted out the lending in April once the stampede had died down. You could also try the switcheroo technique of saying you're paying cash, having the proof of funds available to verify it, but then switching to using, say, bridging finance later on instead. The downside of this, as a minimum, is a loss of credibility with the agent, potentially damaging future relations, and or also with the vendor, potentially risking them pulling out of the deal. For these reasons, I do not advocate this approach, as I prefer to maintain a good reputation for doing what I say I will do. The property community is surprisingly small and also very well connected, so word does seem to get around. Buying in cash can work particularly well with smaller property uh, purchase values I've found when compared to some kind of financing. The, the main reason for this is that many of the costs of acquisition are not directly proportional in percentage terms to the purchase price. Examples of, of, sorry, examples of this can include legal, broker and lender fees in particular, which can sometimes be either fixed fees or banded according to purchase price range rather than the set uh, percentage of the actual purchase price payable. The effect of this can be to increase the proportion of uh, total costs associated with financing on smaller transactions. As a result, small deals particularly lend themselves to cash purchase, I have found. However, perhaps on the downside of fully using our own cash resources um, are, are some of the economic arguments. In particular, two terms to keep in mind are opportunity cost and leverage. Opportunity cost basically means how much of a return we may need to give up in order to use our cash for the purchase and realise the returns on that particular project. So if we estimate that we will make a return on investment of, say, 8% on our cash in a property transaction, we should look at how else we could use that same cash in order to work out the opportunity cost. If we have the cash on deposit, earning, say, probably less than 1% per annum in interest at the moment with a bank account, 8% uh, ROI from the property deal looks like a bit of a no-brainer, doesn't it? 
However, if, say, we're offered the option to become a private financier with an, an annual return of 10% on, that set, on those same funds, then the decision becomes a little bit more marginal. Looking at returns alone, we may decide against using cash, all of our cash, to buy a property and instead lend some of it uh, to other investors instead and achieve that higher return. In this simple example, the opportunity cost of using our funds for the property transaction is either 1% per annum uh, lost by withdrawing it from the bank, and that's the foregone interest that I referred to earlier, alternatively 10% per annum in this example by using it as a private lender instead. There's a growing market for this type of private financing, as we has ourselves have found with some of our own projects, and uh, we've utilised this one quite a lot and it can offer a win-win outcome for both parties. However, as always, consider the risk-reward trade-off, do your research, and have adequate security from who you are lending to. It may or may not meet uh, other investor objectives as well, such as a desire to own assets yourself. So it's not for everyone all of the time either. With regard to leverage, this is also a topic that I have covered in, in various ways and at uh, different times in the past. The simplest explanation is that leverage can increase the returns on our own cash by using the funds of somebody else instead, provided the total return on our project exceeds the total costs of using the other party's funds. As an example, um, say we're looking at buying a, a £100,000 property, which we'll rent out for £500 per month. Now, ignoring all of the costs for the moment, just to keep everything simple, that would produce an annual return on investment, or ROI, of 6% on our £100,000 cash investment. Now, if we, look, um, if we took out rather a buy-to-let mortgage at a 75% loan-to-value, with an interest rate of, say, 3.5%, let's see what the difference looks like. Again, keeping things simple, we'll ignore all other costs for now, and this is how it would look. Of course, we've got a £100,000 purchase price, a deposit requirement in cash of 25000 and a mortgage of a buy-to-let mortgage of 75000 to top it up. The mortgage payments here, uh, based on the 3.5% interest rate I mentioned, would be £2,625 per annum, and the rent would be £6,000 per annum or per year, if you prefer. The ROI, then, would be 13.5% which is more than double the equivalent for a purely cash uh, purchase, at least in this illustration. Theoretically, then, we could buy four of these same properties with that same £100,000 investment fund, also increasing our total returns as a result. And of course, the debt would be fully serviced by the rental income received. And this partly explains why many investors like to use mortgages and other forms of finance. But it is a trade-off um, particularly when uh, an, a particularly advantageous cash buying opportunity uh, presents itself. Generally speaking, many vanilla property purchases would simply not justify using valuable cash resources, and so they would you know, not come into play for many acquisitions. Where cash can come into its own more frequently is when the level of discount or the benefit of elimination of our competition is higher. That's when we should be considering using cash to secure a property purchase, I would suggest. One last point on, uh, on cash is a slight tweak of a technique I've used before. If we buy an investment property rather than our own home in cash, we still have the possibility of financing it later on. 
I've touched on financing the target property for a long-term uh, buy-to-let mortgage or even a bridging loan for this uh, particular project. However, we could also look at either of these options to fund an additional purchase of another investment property purchase as well. So this could allow us to secure that juicy flip deal just you know, being tantalized before us using cash and then say a more conventional buy-to-let purchase using the equity released from a buy-to-let mortgage or a bridging loan on another project altogether later on. So that would mean putting the financing in place later on, buying the original property in cash, and then using the funds to go and buy another property after that. So this can therefore accelerate our deal velocity, meaning getting more deals done with the same initial cash funds in an efficient way. In summary then, cash is great in the following situations. To move quickly on a great deal, to secure deep discounts or locking out other finance-backed purchases, whether they're private uh, residential home buyers or investors. On smaller transactions in particular, where the proportional cost of finance can be higher as a percentage of the total cost on the transaction. And when uh, we're less concerned about opportunity cost and leverage. Finally, when we know we can still access the cash equity later on for whatever reason. After cash then, we can take a look at institutional finance. In the most part here, we're talking about buy-to-let mortgages, commercial loans and bridging finance under the heading of institutional finance. But as I've got a, a great guest coming up to deep dive into bridging finance, let's stick to buy-to-let mortgages and commercial loan options here today. Or perhaps not. <laughs> Rather, I do not plan to go into exactly the same aspects that I've previously covered. Instead, let's share some alternative ways of, of, of what has become quite a common form of uh, property investment financing. For ease, I'll use the term buy-to-let mortgage to cover both buy-to-let mortgages and commercial loans, as they are very similar finance offerings in the most part. First, a quick definition. A buy-to-let mortgage is a first charge secured loan provided by a bank or similar institution or institutional lender on a rental property. The idea is to identify a property, buy it, and then apply, a, uh, apply for a buy-to-let mortgage on that same property in order to complete the purchase, before renting it out to cover the costs of repayment to the lender. But wait a minute, there could be some alternatives we could consider here to suit some, some quite specific situations granted. Let's walk through a, a couple of these now. Many of us starting out in property have our own home. home rather where we may be thinking about how we could utilize this to get involved in property investing. We may even be considering selling the property to raise funds to invest. One variation to this approach is to use the asset we already have, namely our home, and uh, raise uh, or release um, um, a mortgage against it to release funds instead. Granted, we won't be able to realize the full market value of the property this way due, due to loan-to-value restrictions, However, once selling costs are taken into consideration, perhaps this, this fundraising gap is not quite so great. Plus, we get to have a rental property and potentially, crucially, a couple of tax benefits only available to homeowners as well. So here's a couple of generous tax breaks only available to residential homeowners, which we'll go through now, um, which might be persuasive in getting you to think about using your home as an asset in this way. 
The first one is the Rent-A-Rune Scheme Allowance, which uh, HMRC has available. And this is a, a tax-free income of up to £7,500 each year where we rent out a space in our own home. Admittedly, it means taking in a lodger or an Airbnb-type short-stay guest into our home. So it, it won't suit everybody. However, the tax-free rental income is extremely generous now and should be considered seriously, I would suggest especially when we're starting out, as it could help us to save for the deposit on our next investment property more quickly. If you know, we are also considering a mix and match approach of remortgaging our home and renting out space within it, we can leverage our home as an asset with a tax-free income in this way, releasing funds on the one hand, generating tax-free cash on the other. So that's the rent a room scheme. The next uh, tax break I really wanted to talk about was uh, something called lettings relief. And if you don't fancy sharing your home with strangers, then an alternative is to move out and, and therefore rent or buy somewhere else to live instead and rent out your former home uh, in full this time. Now, HMRC, the tax, the tax man, offers a very generous uh, relief here, which at the simplest level is worth up to £40,000 should you later decide to sell your former home and realise a capital gain which arises after you've moved out. And just by delaying the sale for a couple of years, a basic rate taxpayer can generate the equivalent of over £220,000 in tax savings when compared to the gross income equivalent in, uh, in income terms. That probably sounds a bit complicated, but basically it can be worth a lot in tax savings. But it's, it's not an often understood uh, allowance, so it only applies when you're renting out what was your former home. In other words, it's quite niche. Um, similarly, capital gains tax. Uh, and it's similar in, in many ways to uh, lettings relief because um, capital gains tax can be a more tax-efficient uh, investment approach when compared to income tax. You probably know the, the rates are lower, in other words. It, it can get a little bit complicated, but at the simplest level, would you rather pay 18% in tax with the first £11,000 being tax-free or a flat 20% tax rate on your property sale profits instead? You would probably prefer the first option, right? Well, you know, if you're a high-rate taxpayer, this, uh, these, these percentages change actually a little bit more. It's 28% versus 40% for high-rate tax taxpayers. Of course, the, the, uh, the first element being tax-free capital gains annual tax uh, limit, that is. But don't forget, the, there's an increased tax-free element if, uh, if you're buying jointly, if the ownership is in joint names. So this is you know, particularly available for um, capital gains tax. You'd realise on an, a, an investment property that you'd held for some time. I think the guideline is three years now, actually. Uh, you held for some time and then sell it on. The profits on sale would be subject to capital gains tax. But it also applies on your, your former home if you converted it into a rental property and then subsequently sell it and make a gain. So it's something to keep in mind. Uh, and it's an alternative to property trading which would be classed as income tax and therefore would be subject to the high rate of, uh, of taxation. Might be tying myself in knots here, but hopefully you're getting the idea. Well, you can, you can do this when you rent out your former home and sell it for a profit later using a combination of private residence relief, lettings relief, and annual capital gains tax exemptions in order to offset a significant part of the gain achieved. It effectively accelerates what you could have done by trading property or renting out other properties quite a bit. And it's one reason why I'm a fan of using your home as an asset. Because your home isn't an asset unless you're deriving some sort of upside income uh, from it. 
But if you can persuade the other half to go along with you, um, you know, this is a good idea, obviously. So I'll perhaps let you, you know, play, play this recording to them or uh, you can persuade them over, a, over a several weeks. It's a good idea to take strangers into your home and that kind of thing. But it's a more complex topic, and if you wanted to pick up the thread with me personally, including getting a copy of my Home as a Tax-Free Asset Calculator, just drop me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and we can continue that way. And tax is not the only situation where we could consider a variation when it comes to looking at accessing the equity in our home. Here are some other potential options or permutations that we could consider. The first is what are called, or what is called, consent to let. And if we decide that we want to rent out our home, we often think that getting a buy-to-let mortgage is the right thing to do. In fact, it will breach the terms and conditions of a residential mortgage if we let out or rent out our property without the lender's formal consent. An alternative is to ask for what is known as consent to let instead. Some lenders will allow you to rent out your former home with no or little changes to their terms if you had a residential mortgage on it. And this could preserve an attractive mortgage rate, reduce additional deposit requirements, or reduce remortgage fees as a result. Therefore, it could be a lower cost entry point into buy-to-let than going and buying a separate buy-to-let property. Just an idea there. So basically, you switch your current home to a rental property Instead of getting a buy-to-let mortgage, you seek consent to let, and some of those advantages would uh, come out to you. So it's an alternative to a buy-to-let mortgage is really where I'm going. And the next category I'm going to call uh, equity release by remortgage, further advance, or even second charge. Selling the property uh, or any property can introduce a lot of costs, and uh, buy-to-let loans carry higher rates and uh, deposit requirements that residential loans in the most part don't. So releasing additional equity for property investing purposes can be attractive by acqu- uh, sorry, accessing equity in our, in our home, either by remortgage with the same or a new lender, a further advance with the same lender, or a second mortgage with a new lender instead. There are pros and cons in each situation, obviously. However, I've used the further advance option a couple of times on both residential and indeed buy-to-let properties as a way to retain my asset for the long term Uh, for my long-term wealth creation, whilst releasing additional cash for my portfolio expansion as well. One thing to watch out for here, though, is to always make sure that the ROI on the application of the additional funds released exceeds the interest rate on the the same uh, amount that's been released, in other words, the new debt. Uh, There there are some other possibilities that uh, could give rise to uh, applying institutional financing in alternative ways as well. Some of these possibilities also apply to existing buy-to-let property. So it's not just about homes I'm talking about here, in other words. In particular, the idea of further advances, remortgage or second charges. Remember that selling property crystallizes any tax due at that point in time and also carries additional transaction costs such as estate agent and conveyancing fees. Therefore, looking at raising finance from an existing asset without selling it can help to reduce these taxation and transaction charges, even when there are limits linked to the loan-to-value and interest rates uh, to consider. Once again, though, it's, uh, as always, a trade-off. So, you know, weigh weigh things up on on either side. And I know it introduces a level of complexity, but financial uh, engineering, financial management, um, it it does carry some level of complexity if you want to maximise the returns available.
Some investors also elect to never sell property, and never at all, choosing instead to refinance several times over in order to release funds to expand their portfolio. And this can be an effective way to keeping the, the tax and sales transaction fees under control as mentioned. However, please do be careful about how these funds are used. It, uh, it should be okay if the funds are reinvested into the portfolio, as that way a return on investment over and above any refinancing charges can easily be calculated and indeed justified. Although I would not recommend this approach where the debt is used in substitution for an income, as there are a number of negative tax consequences that could arise here. And I've dedicated an entire podcast episode to this potentially flawed strategy, uh, that is um, refinancing for income rather than refinancing for further expansion. And if you want to know more about this, the link is in the show notes or as ever, drop me an email. Finally, here's a couple more, perhaps less well-known applications of the conventional buy-to-let mortgage. Equity release from an existing rental property to fund new acquisition deposits, works, costs and fees, or equity release from an existing rental property to fund existing property upgrades, conversions, lease extensions and other added value projects. Equity, equity release could come from a remortgage, a further advance, a second charge or even a temporary bridge. That's taken us a little bit further into a slightly different domain, which I don't want to dwell on, at least in today's short show. In short, then, the, the aim and intention here is to use cheap money, such as buy-to-let mortgage loans, to invest in higher returning property investment returning uh, return assets instead. It's a kind of debt investment arbitrage, in other words. I like that word, don't I? Arbitrage, but trade-off is <laughs> probably another way of, of phrasing it. But make sure you're comfortable with the new higher debt level and that the property being refinanced can still still service the debt repayments on the new lending wherever possible. Even so, the new acquisition should also produce a higher net profit and cash flow position to stay on the right side of uh, debt servicing ratios and to avoid highly leveraged overexpansion. So don't sort of be too aggressive with this. Don't do it too quickly. Don't overborrow if you like. Um, and, and put it into different properties with achieving very, very low cash flow because uh, under certain conditions, you know, you could be overtrading and be at risk, I guess. Here. So the watchword is to, to take care. In fact, my golden rule is to make sure every single property in my portfolio can stand on its own two feet when all costs and provisions are taken into consideration. So that's every single property. However, there might, might be an opportunity to uh, consider refinancing a property every five to ten years, say subject to undertaking a sensible risk assessment of the situation and the prevailing conditions at the time. There you go then, uh, a slightly different approach to the subject of property financing using some of the more conventional uh, financing methods available to us, namely cash and buy-to-let mortgages. I've tried to apply some, some practical and sometimes more creative ways of looking at these types of financing methods that could help us to expand our portfolios more rapidly growing the snowball at a faster rate, if you like. And this type of creative or applied practical thinking is going to be a running theme in this more specialised series, I think you find. For now though, uh, let's leave it there, <laughs> I think. Next time, we'll take a closer look at bridging finance and uh, where I'll be joined by someone with uh, bags of experience as both an investor and a finance broker. Not only that, he has a terrific and inspirational story to share as well. So make sure you're listening next time for that episode.
for certain. By all means, do email me personally if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally property investing podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. Now, all that remains to say is uh, thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.